0: Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. I'm your guest host this week. I'm Frank Washcook, PR Week's executive editor, stepping in for Steve Barrett this week, uh, who is out in the field. I have a great uh, guest for you this week. It's uh, It's Mark Ross. He is the founder and chief communication strategist at Caracol, and he's also the founder and chief curator of Brigadier. Mark, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me here. Wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: And I have a great guest host, Diana Bradley, our associate news editor. Diana, thanks for coming on the podcast this week.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Just back from vacation, I might add, out in out west, <laughs>
2: Zion.
0: That's true. I was in Arizona. I went to Page and I saw Antelope Canyon and Horseshoe Bend and when I went to Utah and um, Zion National Park. So now I'm back in New Jersey. It's a little bit different the scene out my window, but um, yeah.
1: It's... I remember seeing Zion for the first time, and it was just mind blowing. The first, as somebody who who has lived 99% of their life in the Northeast, you see Zion for the first <laughs> time, and you're like, "This is just this is nice. like a whole other beautiful planet." Um, it really is. Oh, we could do a whole other podcast on that, but uh, let's turn it over to Mark to start. So Mark, what is what is Caracol? Uh, so, You're the founder of Chief Communications Strategist there. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it is.
2: Yeah, from a basic high-level perspective, I essentially help leaders with communications intelligence to navigate today's interconnected global business environment. So I've spent nearly 20, 25 years in Washington, D.C., um, I spent a little bit of time in California for a few years trying to work at a startup, but primarily my entire life, um, even going back to grade school, you know, I was the student body president and kind of the nerd who watched C-SPAN as a grade schooler. I've just been really working on politics and really at the intersection kind of business and politics for basically my professional career. I um, have done everything from work on presidential campaigns in the U.S., had a chance to work on a prime minister campaign in the UK. I've worked for a number of trade associations. And I would say for like the last you know, decade, I've really been focused on U S China commercial relations. I was the um, communication director of the U S China business council. And now I help folks kind of navigate, you know, what's happening with globalization, trade, international commerce, and um, taught a course for a bit at George Washington university. So that's, that's my background.
1: Uh, that's going to be really useful for this week. you go, given that everything, uh, that's going on right now, whether it's the state of the union and the tensions in Ukraine, um, tell us a little bit when you talk to clients, everything going on right now between the pandemic, between, you know, the, this just heightened political tension in the U S the situation in Europe, what, what do they want to know? About? What, what is the thing keeping them up
2: at night? I think humans overall just have a huge tendency to, Ignore things until they really matter. Now, obviously, as somebody who's passionate about globalization, international commerce, trade, you know, paying attention to what's happening in Beijing, Brussels, Tokyo, um, most people discount that, right? We're, most of us, you know, we are we pay attention to what's happening immediately in front of us until all these international capitals come to bear and world events happen when we want to figure out. So I think in the short term, people are really trying to figure out, you know, how serious is the situation What's the end game? How do we be prepared to operate in a world that, frankly, is becoming much more constrained? Supply chains are only can get more challenged. Um, politics has been very hyper focused, obviously since 2016 here in the U.S. and now so it's becoming globalization. So I think clients are generally a bit nervous because this this truly. In some ways, I think is what we're witnessing right now is a bigger event than 9/11, which is shocking to say. Is obviously, you know, a lot of our friends and family listening to the show in you know, kind of DC and New York. Um, but what we're witnessing is akin to the Berlin Wall falling down, and you know, what what does that mean? So stepping back and trying to you know look at history, where things are going, taking a deep breath, and giving advice on how to navigate. Is where we're at and i think as communicators you know my big belief when i work with clients is obviously the decision is up to them but all i can really do is put them in a position to succeed and give them options but ultimately based on my best advice and i think that's what we're trying to do right now
1: what are what are the questions they're asking um i i almost want to back up for a second because you, sure. i think you're right this is a this is a gigantic historic event yeah but, uh, you mentioned a lot of your work was focused on the commercial relationship between the u s. and China before this. What kind of questions do they have about that relationship? Um, because you know you 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 hear from people, you know there there are some corporations in the u s that that understand China really well, and there are some that don't. There are some that it's just a gigantic black box too. so let's let's talk about China a little bit first and and what are the things that they want to know about doing business in the country or things like that?
2: Sure. I think that's a great point. And I would yeah, iterate, like not all businesses are created equal, right? If you're a publicly traded multinational company, like say Coca-Cola versus like say a larger company like Timkin, um, your priorities and your outlook are much different. Um, Coca-Cola has been in China for over a hundred years and probably will stay in China for a hundred years, regardless of who the government is, where other businesses are trying to figure out how to navigate that. And then, of course, it's not only just doing business in China, which takes a lot of fortitude. There's a lot of challenges. You know, there's huge opportunity, but there's a lot of risk. And there's you have to have a lot of smarts, you know, everything from how do you protect your intellectual property to how do you not overstep with the Chinese Communist Party to then also, you know, working with a government here in the United States that sees China as a competitor. And if you just fast forward, I think if you look at what happened around the Beijing Winter Games, which I was calling the Beijing Splinter Olympics in the sense that, you know, we had some really huge blue chip American companies and, you know, NBC, Comcast, their entire business model is predicated on broadcasting the Olympics. They couldn't go as aggressively as they wanted to. And um, they are wrestling with saying, hey, you know, we're actually supporting the IOC. We're not supporting the Chinese government. And in many ways, I think as a country, we have a history history of being isolationist we're not as worldly as i think we want to be and i think we're being forced to be much more cognizant globally somebody's being more responsible and saying hey we are we have global businesses we have global interest and having more frank conversations not only with our stakeholders and shareholders but also with elected officials so um that may not be the most concise answer but i think it really gives you a sense of how muddled this stuff is. I mean, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of things that businesses wanna say, but they don't wanna say it. Um, actually, I wrote a blog post this week talking about when I was at the US China Business Council. And you know, as a spokesperson, it's great to communicate and take questions from the New York Times and The Economist and Politico, but clearly it's much more interesting if a CEO speaks or a small business person speaks Right? Than some DC spokesperson. Right? And I'll never forget this. I would always go out and say, hey, there's an opportunity to talk to the New York Times. And this lobbyist said, you know, essentially that's why we pay you. You know, we're paying you to have these conversations. And that was in some ways like the reality of the communications. But fast forward, we are this week, you know, Tim Cook sending out that tweet vis a vis about Ukraine. U.S. companies moving rapidly to either stop or halt, you know, activities in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there's a great story today in the New York Times about Brad Smith and Microsoft, what they did around malware. At a certain point, um, when things get really, really critical, obviously the best voices are the CEOs and the senior leadership, and you have to be, you know, kind of recognize that environment.
1: I read both of those stories, and you're right, they're fascinating about Microsoft making the decision to step in and and warn the Ukrainians about you know new types of malware targeting them. I mean, really, really fascinating stuff about when a private entity in the US gets gets involved there.
2: That, um, yeah, Frank, that's like that story once again I'm talking about unprecedented things because yeah. not only was that a rapid situation, obviously there's been a lot of talk, you know, especially in DC, there's always like this idea of public-private partnership. When, you're, when you work do, doing government relations or public affairs, you're obviously speaking to a lot of different constituencies, people on, on the Hill, people in the administration, you're trying to keep open dialogues. You know, there's 180 embassies here in DC, so you're talking to a diplomatic corps. You know, the fact that Microsoft moved that fast, worked with the administration, Brad Smith, their CEO put a blog post out about it today. You know, they basically said, listen, when push comes to shove, we're gonna work with NATO, we're gonna work with dem- democracies, right? And I guarantee you, that's a tough call for Microsoft because there are people in Beijing that are also reading that new york times story as well yeah
1: absolutely absolutely so we it's a good jump back to the olympics for a second what were your you mentioned the the nbc universal slash comcast angle uh, right. uh what what are your other main takeaways from from the from these games in terms of how businesses operated there how marketers are operated there because I, I, just from my personal experience, I, I like the Olympics. I enjoyed the Olympics. I, I had a really tough time getting into this Olympic yeah. Games, and I think it was partially lack of spectators. It was partially the time zone difference. But it just, you know, it felt like something was missing to me, and that's just as a spectator. So what do, what do you think businesses walked away from from the last Olympic Games in Beijing? What with What kind of feeling?
2: So my I I was giving private counsel and I also wrote like an opinion editorial that um, got placed in the Colorado Springs Gazette, which is home, obviously, to U.S. Olympic Committee. And I basically said that it's time for Americans to get more serious. Like, sure, sometimes the games are in Beijing, but oh, by the way, they're also in Los Angeles. They're also in Paris. They're also in London. And. You know, to take Procter & Gamble or NBC Comcast, they're making multi-year bets. Like, they're saying we're going to be committed to the Olympic movement for a decade. And I think my encouragement is to basically say, listen, you can't be high. Everybody knows you're operating in this environment. Why not just say, listen, we support the games. We support the athletes. You know, it, isn't, it is factual. It isn't up to us where these games are played, vis-a-vis the corporate sponsors. And I don't know why there isn't a more full-throated Defense. Based, based on my experience being around US China stuff, I just generally think at at a certain level, CEOs, MBA graduates just haven't learned or spent enough time thinking about global politics. I mean, we're a relatively young nation, right? I mean, I think last night Joe Biden said we're 245 years old. You know, it really wasn't up until World War II, which is, you know, say 70, 80 years ago, that we were thrust into this position. You know, in the history of the planet, that is. Not that long. And in fact, it wasn't until the 60s or 70s when companies went global, right? So we don't have have a long history. If, I'm sure we have friends, if you talk to friends and say, you know, the Netherlands or Germany, they've been doing global commerce for a long time, like throughout their history for various reasons. And we just haven't been there. And I think as a business community, we just haven't had the comfort to say, here's the reality of the situation. I mean, Apple, for example, 28 percent of the revenue comes from China specifically. Coca-Cola has 45 plants in China. Like these are, these are facts, but it's never talked about for various reasons. But I think we just can no longer ignore the world for various reasons. And I think we're seeing a big pivot shift here, but there's just not, there's a, it, it's tough to talk about without conviction and confidence, how to talk about globalization. And I just think a lot of senior leaders, they just haven't had to, had to do that for a long time or ever.
1: You're giving me a springboard here and picking your brain about another topic, and that's and that's all of the sports pullback, not just the yeah. Olympics, but all of the sports pullback uh, that Russia's going to be facing. You know, yeah, look, they're they're out of the World Cup now. Even before they were out of the World Cup, you know, other countries in Europe, who were their neighbors, by the way, we're saying we're refusing to play them. Uh, they're they're out of the UEFA competitions. Correct. Um, you know, even even today, EA Sports has has pulled the Russian teams out of the hockey game and, and FIFA. Wow. And So I mean, I mean, this is when you think about how much money Putin had put into hosting the World Cup or hosting the Olympic Games in Sochi. I mean, what what kind of a blow is this? Because culturally, you think about you know you think about the Soviet Union and and how much Americans anyway identified it with the Olympic success they had positively or negatively. This feels like a huge thing to me culturally. And and am I wrong? Am I right? Am I making too big of a deal out of it?
2: No, as somebody, listen, I grew up in Detroit. I'm a huge Detroit Red Wings fan. And you know, one of the reasons there are several Stanley cups in Detroit was because there was a famous slide called the Russian five. We had five of the best Russian players playing in the motor city, playing great hockey. And you flash forward to 20, you know, where we are today, Ovechkin, the best player in the NHL playing here in DC, he's been pulled from CCM, you know, hockey gear ads He's been pulled from Mass Mutual ads. Um, no, it's the, how fast this has moved. We're only seven days. or less than a week into the situation. It's it's amazing. Uh, Formula One pulling out of Sochi, uh, on and on. And I think it's just a real a realization that when things have to move, things have to move. And governments have conversations with folks all the time where they're you know the the U.S. government isn't telling. Mass Mutual or Formula One or UEFA what to do, but there's certainly a lot of encouragement to do the right thing. And getting back to just the general nature of the culture of Americans or kind of Western business folks, I mean, inherently, I don't think we have any animosity towards the Russians, right, as a people. Do we have problems with the Russian government? 100%. And, you know, we try to find ways to incorporate them, bring them into the fold, but they've gone too far. We have to pull out. And soccer what's happening this weekend you know as a huge soccer geek would love to talk about what's happening with chelsea you know the premier league apparently every captain this weekend their armband is going to have the colors of ukraine um it's super amazing and it's it's hard for me to think there are a lot of executives at the nhl waking up just two weeks ago saying hey what is our russia policy right Mm -hmm. um but that's where we are the fact that ea sports is pulling the russian team out of video games amazing like unbelievable
1: yeah. Yeah, really is. And, and by the way, listen, this is that podcast. You can talk about Chelsea and Abramovich uh, deciding <laughs> to sell the what, what team. What are your thoughts about that? Because I, I I was skeptical that that would happen.
2: Well, listen, I think I don't want to be, you know, I may come across a bit cynical. Um, you know, he's trying to sell it. So, okay. Like, what does that mean? Like, who's the buyer? You know, apparently it's a bill. He's loaned the team a billion dollars. So whatever value you think that team is, you know, add a billion dollars. Um. You know, Shell is pulled out of Russia investments. BP is pulled out of uh, Russian investments. But you know, who's the market? Who's buying this stuff? You know, I mean, the Canadians earlier this week banned importing Russian oil. They, as a country, they haven't imp- imported Russian oil in three years. So, some of the stuff we're seeing. You know, I advise clients as well. Politics is often the art of what's possible. Right? There are a lot of things that we all want to do and accomplish but there are various forces that come to play in politics. And when you add on global politics, it's even more intense. So a lot of things that we're seeing is possible. Is it easy for the Premier League, members of parliament, and folks to encourage Abramovich to sell Chelsea? Yes. You know h- How that actually happens is another story. And are we going to keep up this intensity for what could be a five-month, five-year situation? Like, Is EA Sports committed to not having the Russians on their video hockey games for five to seven years, unclear, you know, it's easy to do this. It's easy to do this on day six. Um, talk to me, you know, it's day 360.
1: Yeah, and and of course it raises the question of who would who would buy Chelsea and who might be next in line at that point too. Um, We're going to get back into Ukraine in a second. I want to. You talked about Caracol. I love the tagline "Always be communicating." I love a good Glenn Dryer, Glenn Ross uh, reference, whether it's essential or not. So well, that only took um, me
2: six. Only took me six years to figure out. So whenever (laughs) you know people think they have creativity, sometimes it takes a while to figure that out. But thanks, thanks for noticing.
1: Tell us a little bit about Brigadoon which is uh, the other which is your other gig.
2: Yeah, so Brigadoon really came out of like uh, just my own personal frustration. Obviously, you know, working and living in DC, I'm surrounded by a lot of uh, you know, lawyers, high school class presidents, super smart interesting people, but I wasn't, you know, I felt spending enough time with entrepreneurs or other folks in different parts of the business like i don't have a lot of friends in sales i don't have a lot of friends that are you know doing like technology you know like actually building stuff right as opposed to kind of communicate or marketing it so i created the, i just was like hey can we get some really weird interesting people together and just start having conversations you know Graydon carter often would talk about when he's at vanity fair i want to you know report on people that were in the room right like here's actually let's pull back the curtain when you're a spokesperson at the CIA. Like, what does that mean? If you are, uh, you know, doing sports marketing for Atlanta United, what does that mean? If you're a cardiologist, what does that mean? So um, we started that back in 2013 and we would organize multi-day events, dinners, et cetera. And obviously with COVID, we've kind of pivoted to more of a digital audience. But the real idea, and I think as a communicator, I think it's really important to know what's happening in the world, right? So not being blinded by your own like desires or being like, oh, I wish the world was like this, but really understanding what's happening. Like who are the best subject matter experts around AI, crypto, um, even we had one interview, getting back to soccer, my friend, Jared, he's like one of the leading grass turf specialists in the world. And, you know, if you look at the field at LA football club, like he's responsible for that pitch. And, you know, like, what is that like? That seems super interesting. Let's have a conversation with Jared. So. That was the idea behind Brigadier, and it's kind of evolved, but in some ways for me, it's almost like a think tank, keeps me honest and exposed to kind of other ideas uh, that are shaping commerce and culture.
1: Mm-hmm. I like the idea, you had, I thought I saw from a tweet, you had Garrett Graff there once, right?
2: Yeah, Garrett Graff, actually, I think going back to 2017, wrote this great book about Raven Rock and uh, the title is, you know, how the you know how the U.S. survives while the rest of us die, which is pretty uh, you know aggressive, but it talks about how what would happen during a nuclear strike, like what how would the government reconstitute itself, how would it survive, and um, you know he's an amazing writer. He's doing stuff now for WIRE, He's got a book out on Watergate. Yeah, and just being able to spend time in a small you know these events, we're talking 50, 60 people uh, getting back to like the event. Daniel you know, like this was back in Utah at Sundance. You know, spending times in the mountains. Just chatting with smart interesting people uh there's really nothing better than that so that's kind of the idea behind break in getting smart interesting people like garrett in, in my professional life i'd have really no reason to kind of interact with garrett right um but being able to spend time with him and learn about that um is kind of the, the vision behind break it in
1: yeah ravenrock is a terrific book i've uh, i've read it and it's it's really it's fascinating. I don't know that it's great bedtime reading right now. It might be, <laughs> no, horrifying, I agree. but it's, um, but you know, I learned so much reading of it just about uh, Eisenhower and all of the, the planning and operations that they did in the fifties and sixties for, for all of Ex- these preparations. And it's really fascinating.
2: No, I think bringing it up, like that's a good point. Cause going back to like where we were talking about globalization, CEOs having a worldly view. I mean, that is only 70 years ago. I mean, yeah. We've been tasked with, as a country, figuring out how to institute a global nuclear triad and defend a lot of the planet in 70 years. And oh, by the way, like our CEOs, our executives, the people, the women leading different companies, they've also had to figure out this new environment. And that is not that long ago. I mean, not at all.
1: yeah. And he also did The Only plane in the Sky, which is also a terrific book, by the way. Correct. Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's get back on Ukraine for one second I and talk about the communications aspects of this. And I mean, look, we all realize there, there are more important things going on than the communications aspects of it, right? There's people losing their lives on the ground, but this is what we cover. So um, I look at this in terms of social media and the Ukrainians are really getting their point of view across on social media in a way that the Russians are not. And I think that's really surprising to me. And I think part of it is just, you know, Zelensky's personal heroism and the way he's using his own phone and his own voice and all of that, I think, has been effective. But it's shocking to me because um, they get a lot of people's heads and a lot of American sense. We we sort of saw the the Russians and the Soviets before them as like these propaganda masters, right? Correct. And they've been outflanked here. And I think that's that's surprising to a lot of people, wouldn't you say?
2: I think it's 100% surprising, but I don't think it's by accident. I think that the Ukrainians, our allies, our friends are having a lot of help. I think, you know, there are covert operators. You know, I, I don't have this on fact. I'm just guessing just based on the way I think the world works. You know, DGSE, MI6, CIA, um, a lot of this is great. And I think the Ukrainians, what's been interesting about this conflict, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, I was trying to exactly figure out, I mean, it's been eight years since Crimea, right? Getting back to the Olympics. It was right after that 2014. So there's been some kind of Russian presence in Ukraine going back eight years. Biden made this a huge priority. Um, let's say going back two months, just started dropping off tons of Intel. Like, Hey, by the way, the Russians are on the border, like every day getting this stuff. And there's been a lot of preparation, these would communications, et cetera. I, I'm guessing that the Ukrainians, you know, not, weren't pleased about it to lose part of their territory. But they said, "Listen, this this is never going to happen again, right? If these guys go any further, we're going to prepare ourselves." And they've had eight years to get this ready, and it's becoming the uh, the results are being shown. And I I think they're exactly right. They're humanizing it. The imagery of Lona just Putin sitting at a giant table with Macron just for me told me everything about like where Russia is, you know, when Putin announced this special military operation, quote unquote, he was sitting by himself at a desk, weird body language, antique phones around him. Um, So from the start, they've been on the back foot. But I think that um, just working with various reporters and, you know, I've obviously myself applied in stories or shared Intel or shared (laughs) encouraged reporters to say certain things. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of information that is falling into People's laps very opportunely, which is great.
1: We talked with our guest last week a little bit about the administration's strategy of dropping the intel weeks and weeks before, and you know he thought it was effective. I think it's effective in the in the way it worked, in that there nothing the Russians have done militarily so far surprised anybody really. Um, is was that something you would agree with, or or what? What's your take on that? Do you think it's been effective I, for them?
2: I think it's been one hundred percent effective, um, and if even if. Putin never advanced into Ukraine. You know, Biden could be like, okay, we were wrong. So, you know, like, oh, by, but, oh, by the way, we stopped a war. And I think just preparing the American public, being honest and sober, getting back to our earlier points about, hey, if you're going to do business in China or dis- business in certain parts of the world, you know, just be upfront, be forthright and say, this is what's happening. This is why we're doing it. Um, I think we've learned, I say we, like the royal we, the US government has said, hey, you know, we got to be much more, out front, share stuff, prepare, and also tell our enemies, hey, we've got eyes and ears on you. Like we are we know exactly what you're up to, right? And that creates other kinds of uncertainty. And I think it's a real game changer of how, you know, future conflicts will be played out, sharing intelligence. And so many of us now have access to real-time information. You know, this whole idea of uh, open source intelligence, you know, Google satellite photos, it's pretty wild. So in some ways, I'm sure the government's, not only the U S but say the French and the English and the Germans were like, we might as well get out as much as we can to not only prepare our citizens, but also to let Russia know we're on top of it. And I think it's been a real game changer for sure. How big of a
1: deal is it that, um, number one, companies based in the U S and the West have, have cut off, russian companies from social media access in a lot of ways and cut off oligarchs from from social media access or or them from spreading oh, and also have cut off these these russian tv cable networks uh for broadcasting in the west it is how big of a deal is this
2: i think it's really big because in the short term it feels good right to like do all this stuff and you know um i'm sh- like let's get back to ovechkin right so mass mutual had a decision today. Hey, let's drop Ovechkin. Now, Ovechkin is just a, presumably just a Russian citizen. You know, I think where, where it gets dangerous is are we penalizing Russian citizens just because they're governed by this guy, right? Um, not all Russians are created equal. Not all Russians are doing bad stuff. Um, and I think they're, they're certainly, I've had, you know, I would call it like friends that are more peaceful, peaceniks, and they are, you know, all out saying we should have a no fly zone, you know, even today the New York post editorial, the editorial team there at the post, which I didn't know they had an editorial team, but they wrote, you know, saying, listen, it's time. Here are four or five solutions. We need to get involved. So um, there's a huge, just like as humans, we're compassionate, we're seeing this happen in real time. And there's a, just a desire to do something oftentimes without thinking, Hey, let's step back. Like, what does this really mean long-term? It's easy to do something immediately. But like I say, is it smart? to alienate and not have Ovechkin feel that welcome in our country? I'm not entirely sure.
1: I I almost want to ask you to make a prediction here about, you know, what can we expect to see in the coming weeks? But I know that's an impossible question. Uh, but just in terms of media or communications or, or, you know, endorsements like you just mentioned, is there anything you're particularly watching for the next couple of weeks?
2: I mean, I think, I'm t- I mean, privately and publicly, I'm t- I'm telling people, I think this is like a five-month, if not a five-year situation. Even let's say if there's a ceasefire and Zelensky stays in power, Putin is still in Moscow. Like he's not, is to me, as long as Putin is around, he's a problem, right? There's other parts of the Russian empire he'd like to rebuild and divide and et cetera. Um, so I think that, that to me is like the bigger issue, right? I mean, the immediate problem is like peace and a ceasefire, in Ukraine, but then it's like, where does Russia go? Does Russia want to be a part of the modern world or do they want to be North Korea? And I, I think this is a five month, five year kind of situation. To me, immediate stuff, I heard this today. In the summer, the Russian diplomats, they rotate. Just like, we, like people like to move obviously in the summer because the kids school and whatnot, right? So Russian diplomats in a few weeks are going to say, hey, you've got to come back to Moscow, right? Um, how many of those Russian diplomats that are working in Brussels or Paris are like, I'm not going back to what's becoming North Korea. I can't even use Apple Pay in Moscow. And you're asking me to leave Brussels. Um, so how many of those like walk into consulates or not NATO embassies and say, hey, you know, i want to stay in the West. Um, the European summer season, you know, my experience with Russians is very limited. But the ones I have experienced like to hang out in Paris and fancy restaurants in Rome and you know, the seaside and the Mediterranean, that's not happening, right? And I can't imagine that that many Russians are going to put up with that. So um, I think there's the immediate, can we find some cease? can we, uh, you know, have a ceasefire and peace in Ukraine? What happens vis-a-vis travel and tourism or normal economic ties? I mean, another thing I think is a huge issue is the supply chain. You know, this is very in the weeds, but Finnair, you can fly from Finland to Tokyo essentially nine hours vis-a-vis Russian airspace, that's shut off now. Now you've got to go through Anchorage. That adds four to five hours to the trip. So before thin air could run that, they could run two flights a day. Now they can only run one flight a day. So you think about supply chain issues, the price of wheat, coal, all these commodities are shooting through the roof. Um, We've got some serious stuff coming our way on both sides of this issue. So um, I would say buckle up and um, try to do some short-term stuff that feels good, but really step back and say, you know, if this lasts for for five months, three years, what are we prepared to do?
0: Those are all good points. I was going to also just add, like in terms of the social media aspect, um, now that like all of these social media platforms have moved to limit the reach of kremlin controlled media outlets, um these actions also run the risk of angering Putin so much that the platforms themselves get kicked out of Russia. 100%. So there's also that issue because now like people could y- lose the tools that they're using to kind of fight back and humiliate. I,
2: Russians. Yeah. hundred percent agree with you. I think, I mean, I'm a huge opponent of the first amendment. And, you know, I think all speech should be protected re- whether you regard agree with it or not. Um Yeah. I think that, just in the first few days, that imagery of CNN reporters walking around St. Petersburg and Moscow, seeing the protests—you know—having Americans of the West see that is super important. So, you know, is pulling RT from Discover? I don't even know what's on or DirecTV. Sure, it feels good, right? But is this the is this the smartest thing to do? And what could be a multi-month situation?
1: I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I I think. We tend to look at, at Russia here with this sort of stereotype that they don't have access to the amount of information that we do. But clearly they do with all of these protests happening. Uh, you know, wh- why are we wrong about that? Why are we, you know, coming to the wrong conclusion about what sort of information they have access to? And, and where do they get it and how are they getting it?
2: Well, I think, you know, I give back to so. Yeah, I'm I'm 50 years old, right? So for me, like the Berlin or you know the Berlin Wall falling in '89 is when I graduated from high school. Huge issue. One, getting back to sports, obviously one of my most vivid sports memories: the U.S. team being the Russians in Lake Placid, right? Um, you know, I grew up watching Red Dawn, the original with like Patrick Swayze, right? So I think. And this happens a lot, I think, to communicators and marketers. You really, you only really know, you've got to get yourself out of the world you know, right? Like, we overemphasize, we think people vacation here, they drink this kind of beer, they wear these kind of shoes. You know, we overemphasize, like, what, the way we see the world because that's the only world we know. So, yeah, I think we, if you think Russia is the Russia of the 70s or the 80s, that's not correct, right? Uh, You know, there's that great Oliver Stone documentary, where he interviews Putin and Putin is driving a Mercedes Benz, you know, I mean, getting back to sports, one of the Formula one teams is underwritten by a Russian, you know, they they host a rush, they host a Russian race. Um, they like to buy Gucci like us, you know, they love Apple products, just like us. Um, and they have access to the information. So I think it's also uh, getting out of it and trying to get in the other person's shoes is really key. And I think as a communicator, I'm sure the advice we give to our clients and our bosses is like, you know hey you need to see like you need to meet the people where they are here's the reality of the situation it's in in your reality might be wrong right right for sure
1: um wanna just get you before we go to the mo- the news of the week and move us over to diana i just want to get your quick take on the state of the union uh is it a reset how effective was biden what do you think
2: i think this is a challenge because getting back to the reality and like what we want from a president, it could be shaped by Hollywood. You know, we're clearly in our lifetimes and even my lifetime, obviously Reagan was super important. Um, obviously Barack Obama's all-time amazing political athlete, you know, Bill Clinton, amazing orators. And we've all seen videos even go back to John F. Kennedy, you know, saying, I am a Berliner, expand Berliner, my Germans horrible, but you know what I'm trying to say. So, um, I think Joe Biden did what Joe Biden has always done. You know, I don't like, of course, as a communicator, you would hope different things would have happened. The speech maybe would have flowed better. But I think there were very touching moments there. Like him talking about being a single dad for five years, you know, talking about his own father. You know, he mentioned Scranton four or five times um, going to you know Joshua. We all know like a little kid whose birthday You know, who gets a cupcake from the president on their birthday and sits in the State of the Union? I mean, these kind of moments are pretty amazing. And the fact that we have this exercise as Americans, I think it's fantastic. Now, that may be too much rah-rah apple pie and feel good. Um, And I, I don't, maybe we're asking too much from the State of the Union, right? I mean, that could be the other situation. This is a speech that folks at the White House start working on in December, and everybody has a laundry list. It's chock full of all kinds of crazy stuff that every agency wants to get in there. And uh, I don't know, maybe we're expecting too much of it as a communicator or as a um, as a nation. But if you look at today, as we record this, the president and the first lady are on their way to Wisconsin to do an event on infrastructure spending. And so maybe that is the pivot. I mean, Joe Biden recognized what's happening in Ukraine. I thought that was very strong. The stuff in the middle, a little weak. Um, I thought he finished very strong. I felt good about it. Uh, and then, you know, hey, he's on the road today. Talking about infrastructure and um, so I think he got out of it. What do you wanted to get out of it. Of course, I think generally professionals probably wanted a little more, but it is what it is.
1: Fair enough. Okay, Diana over to you give us the top line of the 2022 PR week salary survey.
0: Okay, so. Um... Just pulling some highlights out of it. Uh, So the median salary for comms pros increased 10% from $100,000 last year to $110,000 this year. That's a massive jump over a 1.5% increase last year and the largest year-over-year growth since 2017. Notably, more professionals changed jobs in the past 12 months as compared to the year preceding that. 22% of respondents that they changed employers in the past year up from 12.2% in our 2021 survey. Uh, Salary increases among those who changed jobs were also larger and more common among this year's respondents as compared to last year. And um, out of the group's respondents who changed jobs, more than three quarters, uh, 79.3%, made the move to a richer salary. And it was particularly lucrative among one third, 33.7%, Of the job changers, um, their compensation jumped more than twenty-five (laughs) percent. More more respondents this year than last expect to change jobs in the next twelve months. So the survey um, it told a clear story of a well-adjusted and better compensated workforce that has its confidence back and is in a powerful powerful position to shape their own careers and the industry's future. But yeah.
1: Sorry, I, I was just going to say you, when you talk to people out there, it is the great resignation is real, and in many ways, it's actually understated. It is, and these yeah. numbers really show that. Um, because definitely. you, you talk, Oh, sorry, Diana, what were you going to say? Oh,
0: no, I was just saying, definitely. I agree.
1: <laughs> oh, um, cause you talk to people in house and number one, they're worried about retaining their own people. And number two, they're worried about the, the constant churn of, of agency people and the new people they're working with all the time with their agency teams. Mark, you know, a lot of people in the industry, uh, how does this, is this consistent with what you're hearing?
0: Yeah,
2: hundred percent. Um, you know, uh, I run a kind of lean operation, more of a um, kind of Hollywood studio mile. So I'm a bit of a solo entrepreneur, but we bring folks in to kind of help with various projects and just um, even in my business network, working with my business coach, um, you know, in some ways this is a real opportunity for individuals and organizations under the guise of COVID to try something new. And um, I think we are seeing that reflected. And, you know, I think it's wonderful as a communicator to see more people get better compensated for important work. It's great.
1: Perfect segue there into (laughs) talking about our feature uh, on the head of communications at Glassdoor. Diana, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So um, Scott Dabrowski is Glassdoor's VP of corporate communications. He's the comms head there. And uh, for anyone not in the know, Glassdoor is a platform on which its 55 million users can anonymously review companies, post salaries, and apply for jobs and it helps employees answer the question, what makes a company a great place to work? So Dabrowski noted that in the year ahead, employers are going to hire aggressively and there will be plenty of job opportunities, particularly in internal communications, interestingly enough. And employers have figured out that they need more communication with remote employees, more distributed workforces, and employees now demand more regular updates and transparency. Um, and one of the biggest indicators that now factor into the desirability of a company as a workplace is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's pretty yes. interesting stuff. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's all they're, they're, the profile of Dabrowski is also a great insight into his work as comms head at Glassdoor. So yeah, be sure to check out the full news, Newsmaker feature, which was um, written by our, our reporter Alita Stamm.
1: And there's great info in there about how he uses data to inform yeah. internal and external communications. It's really interesting stuff. He really goes into depth on that part. Okay, Diana, uh, bring us up to speed on the two biggest agency side people moves of the week, at least to this point in the week, uh, at <laughs> Trailrunner and at Golan.
0: Yeah, uh, right before this podcast, uh, Mark and I were joking about how just we're wondering how much news has moved on just in, in, the, <laughs> in the few minutes that we've been doing this podcast. So, um, so yeah, one of the moves was um, Trailrunner International has appointed um, managing director and New York office head Kelly Wallace as chief operating officer. And the agency has also opened a new office location in New York City to accommodate growth. So in her new role, Wallace will support CEO Jim Hughes with all global operations, help implement the firm's growth strategy and vision, operationalize internal systems, and bolster the firm's culture. Um, She'll continue to serve on the agency's executive committee and will lead the New York office until a replacement is found for her in that particular role. That's the first move. Um, The other one is um, Golan has promoted George Bryant, who is founding partner and chief creative officer of the Brooklyn brothers, to the newly created role of group group chief creative officer. So he will report to Golan CEO, Matt Neal, and be responsible for global creative operations for all Golan group agency brands, which include Golan, the Brooklyn brothers, Virgo Health, and DeVries Global. He'll oversee 100 staffers and continue to manage creative for the Brooklyn Brothers London.
1: All right. Always interesting to see how the agencies integrate the more creative roles into the executive structure. So that's about all the time we have. Of course, you can... PSA here. You can still get tickets for the in-person PR <laughs> Week Awards this year. Two weeks, uh, March 16th, New York City at uh, Cipriani. So that uh, put that on your calendar if it's not already. Uh, but Mark, thanks for joining us today. Great podcast. And Diana, thanks for uh, thanks for guest co-hosting. Really appreciate it. And thank all of you for, for listening this week. And we will see you next week at this time on PR Week.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.